morning, I would turn with me in Luke's Gospel to chapter 17, where we'll take as our reading verses 11 to 19. Luke, the 17th chapter, verses 11 to 19. Hear now God's word. And it came to pass, as they were on the way to Jerusalem, that he was passing along the borders of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go and show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back with a loud voice, glorifying God. And he fell upon his face and feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were not the ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there none found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger? And he said unto him, Arise and go thy way. Thy faith hath saved thee. And thus far the reading of God's word. I want to speak to you this morning on the rarity of gratitude and the significance of that rare gratitude that we see exemplified in the Samaritan of this particular story. So often we are accustomed to thinking of Samaritans uh, in terms of the well-known story of the good Samaritan. I want to suggest to you that we have an equally important story to focus on this morning, the story of not the good Samaritan but the grateful one. The grateful Samaritan who turned back to Jesus. In verse 11, Luke tells us what the geographical setting of this particular story is. He says, It came to pass, as they were on the way to Jerusalem, that he was passing along the borders of Samaria and Galilee. Now, because Luke is a historian, you might expect him to give the geographical setting. You might expect him to put his story in context. And that's all well and good. It does serve that purpose. But you must understand that, especially in terms of Luke's gospel, if you remember back a few years ago when I preached to you a hundred sermons on this gospel, uh, that Luke is developing a theology, that there's a great deal of significance in the very way in which Luke communicates that historical narrative that we call the life of Jesus Christ. And in this particular place, we cannot overlook the importance of the fact that Luke says it came to pass as they were on their way to Jerusalem. This is part of Jesus' last journey. Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. Even as Luke has told us, he set his face to go to Jerusalem because he knew that there he must be betrayed and there he must die for the sins of men. This trip, you see, will lead directly to the cross and Luke wants everything that we see in terms of the narrative, every event that he relates to us, to be seen in that light. Everything that transpires must be understood in terms of Jesus' determination to go to the cross. And so with that in mind, we see that in verses 12 and 13, there was a great need for mercy. 
Oh, you see the fittingness of that? Jesus is going to the cross, and Luke now turns to those who need the mercy of God. These are not ordinary people, however. These are lepers. And it is not um, within the scope of possibility for me as a public speaker to communicate to you the horror of what it was to be a leper in that day. Some in our day and age, in some areas of the world that do not have the benefit of ready supply of medicine and and a doctor's care, who still suffer the ravages of leprosy in the way that people then did. But you have to understand that in that day and age, they had not found a cure for leprosy. They had found no way to turn back its dreadful effects. There were two types of leprosy, as we recognize it in the medical literature today. I'll put it very simply to you, since you're all amateurs like I am in this regard. There's a slow and a fast form of leprosy, a minor and a major form of it. But in all forms of leprosy, it would come about that a patch of skin, usually on a person's face, would turn white, sometimes a very deep reddish color, but usually white. And that would indicate that the infection was there. It would spread to the various glands of the body so that eventually, especially in hand and facial tissue, there is a withering away of that tissue and a collapsing of the structure. So you see, with terrible difficulties in face and hands and feet, crippling them and making them very, um, very hard to look at because of this dreadful disease of leprosy. The law of Moses understood the infectious character of leprosy. Often those who with the major form of leprosy will go through fits, will go through um, great uh, uh, bouts with uh, high fever, with agonizing pain within them, and especially during the time of those high fevers, they are uh, terribly infectious to be around. And so the law of Moses specified that lepers were to keep their distance. They could not have any part of common society. And so we have an expression that lasts even into our own day, to treat someone as a leper. Well, of course, how do we treat lepers today? Well, it isn't so tough today. We put them in hospitals and administer the cures and so forth, and very soon these people are back and, and, and living their normal lives again. In that day and age, to be a leper meant to be an outcast, to be put outside of polite, to be outside of common commerce, to no longer have those social contacts with loved ones or friends that you desire. And not only did the lepers have to stand outside of common society, they had to have their own little communities outside of the cities. But when they would walk down the road, if you were a leper, it was your obligation to pass to the other side of the road when there was a normal person coming, a person who was healthy and whole. You must pass to the other side of the road. And if you were to say anything at all, anywhere around other people, you had to cover your mouth. Probably an indication both of medical sanitation, but also the fact of the humble condition of the person. And so Jesus now, setting his face to Jerusalem and going to the cross, stops in a small village. And there Luke tells us in verses 12 and 13, as he entered into this village, there met him ten men that were lepers who stood afar off. Luke, remember, is a physician. Luke appreciates the little details. He doesn't have to remind us, really, that the lepers would stand afar off, but Luke makes note of that. They stood their distance. In fact, they um, probably would not have been noticed 
unless they called out to Jesus. The text seems to indicate that Jesus takes note when they finally call. They were so far away. They came as close as they dared and then shouted an appeal for help to Jesus. And it has great significance that their appeal for help comes as a prayer for what? What do you see in your text? They pray that Jesus will show them mercy. You see, they very well knew that they had no claim on God. I mean, these were people who were not exercised to pride. These were people who were not inclined to take things for granted. These were people who knew that they were outcast, that they were despised and rejected. They knew that if anyone were to show them a favor, it would not be because justice deserved it. And so with a real, humble understanding of their position, they ask Jesus, not for healing. They go further, they ask Jesus for mercy. And in verse 14, you notice the presumed cure that comes from God. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go and show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus did not come to the lepers. This is very interesting. If you read the accounts of Jesus' miracles, especially the accounts of Jesus' cures, as he heals people in the pages of the Gospels, you will notice that there is a large variety of ways in which he conducts himself. A large variety of ways in which he speaks to those who need to be healed, in which he deals with the circumstances of their melody, in which he touches or doesn't touch them. There's a great... I might ask yourself, why is that? Well, one very good reason for it is that we are to learn that the healing ministry of Jesus was not tied to some kind of form or ritual that the power of healing had nothing to do with saying the right words or going through the right hocus-pocus, if you can put it that way. Jesus uses a variety of forms of healing so that it's clear that the healing always relies upon him and not upon what he is doing or the way he says things. In this particular case, though, it may be a little surprising to you. He doesn't even come over to the lepers. They call to him from a distance. He calls back. He doesn't walk over and say, your sins are forgiven, be healed. He doesn't even walk over and say, be healed. He doesn't walk over and elicit a confession of faith. He simply calls out to them an instruction. He orders them to obey the law of Moses, to show themselves to the priest, despite the fact that at that very time they were still leprous. According to Leviticus, the 14th chapter, the law of God specified that the priests were to act as health inspectors in Israel. It was one of their jobs to certify that a former leper was now safe to return to normal society. Be very close to the kind of thing that we sometimes see in our day, the form of quarantine, and then you have a health inspector who has the right to lift the quarantine only when he believes upon good evidence that the danger is past. And so Jesus now, hearing this appeal from help, from ten men in the distance, calls back to them, go see the priest, show yourselves to the priest. The Bible indicates that they each of these, the ten lepers, had the faith to obey him. They followed the Lord's instruction despite their present appearances. I want you to try to put yourself in the position of those lepers 
hearing that word from Jesus. I mean, their hands and their face and their feet and their bodies are racked with pain and disfigurement. It's so obvious. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Be certified that you are healed. But they aren't. Despite appearances, though, they accepted the healing as though it were already accomplished, even though they hadn't experienced it as yet. And I can't help but give you a little aside on the nature of true saving faith, although later I'm going to point out that probably nine of these didn't have saving faith. But the faith that God requires us to exercise is not a faith that is based upon our own empirical experience. It's not a faith based upon the satisfaction of our senses. You notice that? There's no way around it in this particular text. There are Christian apologists in our day who would like us to believe that faith is based upon the evidence of the resurrection, that we can verify as historians, that we can, with any rational man, prove that certain things took place, and that that gives the, the firm foundation for faith. Well, it's pretty obvious that that was not the foundation of faith in this story. Because there was no experience. There was no satisfaction to the senses that they had been healed. There was only the Word of God. Faith takes its foundation on the Word of God. It's very interesting that in the book of Romans, chapter 4, we read that Abraham, who was the father of the faithful, believed God's Word and hoped against hope that he'd be the father of many nations. Abraham did not base his confidence, did not place his faith upon the foundation of a satisfaction to his reason and senses. In fact, he believed against hope, the Bible says. He believed against everything that his senses and all the scientists about him might tell him. He believed on the basis of God's word. And so we see the same kind of faith in these lepers. They didn't look at themselves and find that there was satisfaction for their minds and senses that this had actually accomplished. They rather believed the Word of God, and the Bible says they obeyed. And then, of course, the beauty of it is when they obeyed, when they acted upon that kind of faith, then they were cured. When they obeyed the Lord, acting in faith as though they had been cured, because Jesus sent them as though they were cured, then it happened. As Luke puts it, as they went, they were cured. Okay, well, so this is the setting. We come now then to verses 15 and 16 to the story of the grateful Samaritan. For one of the ten former lepers, the effecting of a cure immediately struck a chord of gratitude within him. I think it's a, an accurate generalization about human nature that if men do not render thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. When you hesitate to give thanks to someone, some human benefactor, or to God, when you hesitate and delay to do that, it becomes all the more difficult for us lethargy to rise up and give him the thanks that is due to his name. Luke makes the point that this leper, upon seeing his healing, turned and went back to said thank you to Jesus. Before he continued on to the priest, he had to first turn back and offer not just thanks, but abject thanks to Jesus. He was not ashamed to be public 
and expressive about his thanks to God. What do we read? He went back glorifying God and threw himself on the ground at the feet of Jesus and said, thank you for what he had done. He wasn't afraid to let everybody know how he felt about this. He wasn't afraid to demonstrate full humility before the one who was his divine benefactor. And so Luke tells us, one of them, upon being healed, turned back, glorifying God, abjectly throwing himself at the feet of Jesus and giving him thanks. And he emphasizes that the only one of the ten who turned back to show his gratitude to Christ was the Samaritan. Samaritans were despised by the Jews. So much so that you may recall that when the Samaritans refused to give a place of lodging to Jesus, his disciples immediately on that occasion said, Should we call down fire from heaven? That's what they thought of the Samaritans. Wipe them off the face of the earth. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, you may recall that even in answering his question, she had to draw the distinction between, well, of course, we worship in this place, but you Jews, you worship down there. We don't have any common, we don't have concourse with one another. We don't like each other. When Jews would come out of Samaria back into the promised land, they would turn and shake the dust off their sandals, lest they carry any of that Samaritan dust into the holy land. And so Luke, you see, finds great significance, very briefly puts it, and he was a Samaritan. Because, you see, this Samaritan, as in the story of the Good Samaritan told by Jesus, this Samaritan, being despised by the Jews, showed up his Jewish fellow sufferers for his piety and his eager appreciation of the work of Christ in his behalf. Luke is giving us here a foretaste of the fact that the kingdom of God is going to be thrown wide open to the Gentiles. He's making it clear that the redemption Jesus brings is not for Jews only, and that the Gentiles are already, already enjoying the benefits of the kingdom in the ministry of Jesus. Now, of course, you can't overlook the fact that this man's gratitude had to be increased by his horrible condition. Socially, he was an outcast. And this man's gratitude had to be increased by his helpless condition. Physically, there was no hope for him. And I think this man's gratitude was unduly increased by his hopeless condition religiously. He was socially cast out, physically deformed, and religiously unexpected. The grace of God overcomes every barrier. Isn't that a beautiful story? Jesus doesn't let that stop him. This man was truly grateful. In verses 17 to 18, However, the telling, haunting question of Jesus is, where are the nine? Where are the nine? The other nine equally had a motive for gratitude, didn't they? They may not have been Samaritans. They may not have had that extra um, complication of their situation. But Jesus had done a wonderful thing for them. Do you know what their lives would be like if he had not done this? What the, what the future would be for these people? Their whole lives were changed. Their whole outlook. He gave them hope. He gave them comfort. He gave them social acceptability. Yes, they had a motive for gratitude, just as the Samaritan, but they were so absorbed in the new happiness that their orientation was self-centered. You see the wiliness of sin. You see the irony of that. 
that we can get so excited about what God has done for us that we can focus upon the benefit rather than the benefactor. And that's what happened to these people. They didn't spare a thought about the source of their new condition. Their focus was just on the benefit that they had received. Of course, there are going to be those who would try to excuse these lepers by saying that they believed their cleansing came from God and they fully intended to give their thanks to God when they reached the priest. However, there's a real problem there because, you see, this cleansing from God came by means of the agency of Jesus. And true gratitude, as the Bible would teach us here, true gratitude would have led them to acknowledge the agent as well as the source of their blessing. Since God was acting through Jesus here, since the kingdom was breaking in upon the realm of disease and sickness through the agency of the king, those benefited by such actions should have likewise thanked God through Jesus. God acted through Jesus and their thanks should have been through Jesus to God in return. And I think it's noteworthy that Jesus openly expresses his disappointment in the poor response of the nine. That would be a worthy study for you to go through the teachings of Jesus in his life and note the times where Jesus shows that inwardly he's crushed. It happens from time to time. We not only know that Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, but Jesus really felt it when people let him down. And here Jesus is giving expression to that. He says, weren't there nine others that I cured? I'm afraid it's not uncommon for the Savior to be robbed of the thankful worship that is properly his. I wonder if we break Jesus' heart here. I wonder if it's possible that Jesus is days without hearing from us. Can that happen? I know that it can. I'm sorry to confess it happens in my life. I would imagine it happens in yours too. There are days when not only does Jesus not hear from us, but he doesn't hear the grateful thanks that we should be giving him for all that he's shown us in mercy. And there are days where, though he has exercised a very extensive power to relieve us from the most complicated of problems and to give us the most detailed of blessings, and we simply say, thank you, and go on. I'm telling you, the Savior is robbed of the thanks that is properly his. And that's why I titled this morning's exhortation, The Rarity of Gratitude. Well, in this particular case, it's only 10%, isn't it? One out of 10 came back and said thank you to him. Faith in God's power and faith which takes an interest in one's own benefit from God's power is one thing. But gratitude for God's intervention to bless us is another altogether. This gratitude for God's intervention in our lives to save us, to cure us, to direct us, to support us, to take care of us, gratitude for those sorts of things is very rare if we take this story as our guide. Such gratitude is difficult to find on this earth. You see, ten men had a common need, and ten men lifted up a cry of agony to the Savior. And ten men were directed by the Lord as to what they should do. Ten men trusted that they should do what he said. 
Ten men started on their journey to the priest. Ten men were miraculously cured. Ten men were mercifully saved by Jesus. But only one turned back in gratitude to glorify God. In verse 19, Jesus indicates that this man's faith was saving faith. Jesus had a further word of encouragement for the one Samaritan leper who had returned to give thanks. He was commended for his faith, even though, as we've already seen this morning, the other nine exercised a remarkable faith as well. But there was something different here. There was something different, something distinguishable about the Samaritan's faith. It had been added to by gratitude. His, his was a grateful faith. Theirs was an operative faith, to be sure, an obedient faith. But his obedient faith was as well a grateful faith. And Luke is going to tell us here in the words of Jesus that such grateful faith is saving faith. It would be helpful if we're going to understand this theology if we took a moment and turned to the Old Testament. A good example of what I'm saying here is found in the 50th Psalm. Psalm 50. And let's look at verse 14 and following. The psalmist says, Offer unto God the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. But unto the wicked, God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, and that thou hast taken my covenant in thy mouth? seeing thou hatest instruction, and casteth my words behind thee. And then verse 22, Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth the sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me, and to him that ordereth his way aright will I show the salvation of God. You see, David here says, that the sacrifice that is acceptable to God is the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in verse 15, when we call upon God in the day of trouble, He does deliver us with the intention that we should glorify Him. The wicked, of course, they'll take His word into their mouth. They cast His statutes behind them. They forget their God. But in verse 23, whoever offers the sacrifice of thanksgiving is the one who glorifies me. And to him will I show the salvation of God. Salvation, you see, is not simply a matter of faith in the most broad, general sense. If you read a textbook of systematic theology, you'll often find a number of categories of faith laid out. For instance, often we mention historical faith. There are people who believe the history of the Bible. They believe that Jesus lived that Jesus died, that he did certain miracles. They believe he died on a cross and rose again, but they do not have saving faith. That's called historical faith. There's also temporary faith, such as uh, those represented in the story of the uh, four kinds of ground. The seed comes upon one of those four kinds of soil and springs up immediately, but there's no root to it, and it dies out when the sun comes and withers it away. There are different kinds of faith. There are different ways of believing, and the psalmist would tell us that if our faith is simply in God's ability, if our faith is simply that God has done things for us, 
That doesn't mean it's a saving faith, but it's the sacrifice of thanksgiving that brings the salvation of our God. And here we see a beautiful illustration of that in Luke. Because when this one Samaritan turns back to Jesus, and Jesus bemoans the fact there were nine others who were healed, after all, who could offer their glory to God too, Jesus says in verse 19 to the one who did turn, Arise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. You see, he was commended for a faith that went beyond what the others had. He was commended for a grateful faith. Now, the end of this variously translated. I need to make this point before we end this morning. The end of this verse is sometimes translated, your faith has made you whole, or your faith has healed you. It is also translated in some places, your faith has saved you, which is what it literally says in the Greek. And I believe that this latter translation is really the one that must be preferred in this situation if we were to make any sense of Christ's words applying particularly to the grateful Samaritan. Otherwise, what Jesus says particularly to him actually applies to all ten, because their faith made them whole in the physical sense. Their faith healed them. But to this man who turns back, Jesus adds something further, I believe. I think he says, this kind of faith has not only brought healing to your body, but healing to your soul. Jesus recognized in this man's thanksgiving the attitude of faith that brings salvation to sinners. And therefore he assured him that everything was well in his life, not only with his body, but also in his soul. He was spiritually healed as well as physically. This day had brought him full restoration from the effects, the dreadful effects of sin, both in his body and in his spirit. And so we see the rarity of gratitude. We also see that saving faith is grateful faith. And so I want to ask you this morning, before we come to a time of offering our thanks to God, whether faith like that is rare among us. Is our faith truly a grateful faith? Is it such a rare thing to find that in this congregation? Well, to help you evaluate that, let me conclude with just a few questions. You evaluate for yourself this Thanksgiving morning where you stand before God. In the first place, do you recognize the mercy of God in your life? Remember, these lepers cried out asking, with great understanding, asking for mercy. Do you realize that every time you go and ask somebody, it's got to be conditioned upon that very premise that I have nothing coming to me except if you should show mercy? And do you act in faith based on God's word? If you are truly grateful for the salvation God has brought to you, if you're truly grateful for the way in which he's answered your prayers and he's blessed you in so many ways in this life, if that kind of gratitude is yours, do you obey his word? Or do you just take it for granted that, after all, I have that coming? That is, you don't really remember that it's mercy that brought you this occasion for thanksgiving. And if you've given your thanksgiving, then, of course, obedience is required. That the word of God would be very important to you. That you'd want to obey it with all of your heart. Uh, do you trust God and thank him, even for adverse things that come into your life? I mean, can you imagine the Samaritan having been relieved of his distress, then sitting down and beginning to say, now wait, why does God do this? I mean, why should anyone in this world? And why me? I'm not any worse than anybody else. 
Why should I have had to suffer? Why should I have to go through all that grief? No, true thanksgiving does not question the providential hand of God, that he knows what he's doing in history. And do we display the joy of those who have been given great cause for thanks? If we are truly thankful people, then joy ought to permeate our lives. When we get up in the morning, we shouldn't be down in the mouth, even if it's early, even if we don't want to get out of bed. We should get up in the morning and say, look at all these reasons for thanking God. I'm going to have to pray an hour longer today. But I think what we usually say is, well, of course, God understands that I'm thankful. I'm really busy. I've got to get on to work. I've got to get my chores done. I've got to do my homework. I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. And God understands that. And so if I don't stop to say thank you, I mean, he takes it for granted, doesn't he? Well, you read the story, does he? Jesus is glorified when one turns back and says, I need to take time to say thank you. And so where's the joy that should come? And do we publicly and do we humbly express our thanks to the Savior? You know, we sometimes come on Thanksgiving morning and the opportunity is given once a year. Of course, you can't every Lord's Day during our prayer time thank God for things that he does for us. But as a congregation, we look to this morning as an opportunity to open up and say, Thank you, God. Look what you've done this year for me. And I know you're my benefactor and you're the focus of my life and I trust your providential hand and I love you. And I want everyone to know that. We sometimes come and there's these awkward moments of silence where you're sitting there thinking, well, but everybody's looking at me. I'm not a public speaker. I hate to stand up. I hate to say anything. And so I'm trying to get to you before we come to that time this morning. And I want to remind you of the rarity of gratitude, a gratitude that will throw yourself on your face before the Lord and say, thank you, thank you. You've been merciful to me. And I want you to know I love you. I wonder if our gratitude is as rare among us as this saving gratitude was in this story. Let's pray that it's not. Father, we come to you this morning wishing for the full impact and the many lessons of this story to be driven home to our hearts, that we might begin to live in a way that's truly pleasing to you, that we might offer you the sacrifices of thanksgiving this morning. We do not wish today to offer you our service or our time, or our money, although all these belong to you. But Lord, we wish to bring the offering of thanksgiving, because we know it pleases you, because we know it's due to your name. Lord, we would glorify you, and glorify you from the heart. We could think of so many things, so many earthly blessings we have, but Father, we would, as that leper of old, remember above all that we are saved, mercifully, powerfully, graciously saved by your love for us. And Father, in the face of that most blessed of all blessings, nothing can hold us back from praising you. No embarrassment, no awkwardness, nothing at all could keep us from the joy of glorifying you because we have new life as we have a hope of heaven before us. We have the presence of your very spirit in our lives. We have your word to guide us and comfort us. 
So, Father, with so many good things before us, loosen our tongues this morning, lest we prove to be like the 90% of this world, certainly of this story, the 90% who just expect you to take it for granted. We won't do that, Father. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.